My special guest today is, in my opinion, one of the finest actors in the world. From both cult and blockbuster movies to the Marvel Universe and beyond, he's enriched everything in between. Today, we're walking the beat down memory lane to the streets of Sun Hill in 1985. Ralph Brown, welcome to The Bill Podcast. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. I mean, the fans worldwide are going to be so, so chuffed to hear your memories. I mean, it's over 30 years since you starred in The Bill, but PC Muswell has been back on the box again, thanks to the Drama Channel. They've been repeating the series over here in the UK. Is that a nice feeling for you that your work is still being enjoyed and probably in a lot of cases a new audience enjoying your work from 30 years ago. Is that, is that a nice feeling? It is. It's a very nice feeling. Uh, it, it, it's great, to be honest, that it's still uh, considered worthy of viewing 30 years later. Uh, I'm not entirely sure that I want to join in and watch it all over again because uh, watching oneself is, is nerve-wracking at the best of times. Watching oneself 30 years ago, I think, would probably give me a heart attack. Oh. So, uh, you know, it, enjoy everybody, but um, don't force me to join in. <laughs> I mean, where were you in your life and career in 1985, just before joining the Bill? Take us back. Yeah, I was living in London. Um, I'd been in Finsbury Park a few years, but I'd just left my long-term girlfriend, in fact, and I was essentially homeless in early 85 and living in somebody else's flat in the Tower Block in Bow. Um, I'd just done a whole bunch of theatre. I'd done a tour with Joint Stock Theatre Company, a play about journalists and the minor strike. I'd just done a play at the Tricycle Theatre in London called Return to the Forbidden Planet, which was about to go into the West End, and I didn't go with it because I got the bill. And I'd, a year earlier, I'd done a play with Stephen Burkoff called West. And so really, for me, it was a big TV break. I had done some TV before, but to be in a, in a series of that length, you know, and that profile was a, was a decent break for me. How did that come about? Was it a, a straight offer or did you have to audition? I was on tour with Joint Stock and I think we were in Liverpool when I got the call of, you know, do you want to be seen for this show? I mean, at the time, I think I didn't know about the show really. And I'd been auditioning for other things. There was a Philip Savile drama about Antarctica, which I was incredibly keen on doing and just missed out on and a couple of other things. But but in the end, I decided to jump on the train and um, and go down to London. And I auditioned for it. And then I had to get on the train and go back to Liverpool and do the show. And uh I'm pretty sure I didn't get a recall, but I think uh, the offer probably came about a week or two later. Would that have come from Peter Crugine? Yes, he was running the show at the time. Wow. Well, it would have come via his people to, to my agent, to be honest. You know, that's how these things work. The Bill, obviously, was quite groundbreaking as a TV series at the time of the way it was filmed. What were the police series that you grew up with and had you ever fancied playing a TV copper, you know? <laughs> well, I grew up with Dixon and Doc Green. I'm old enough to remember uh, Evening All. Uh, I then actually, a few years after this, starred with Kenneth Panham, John Woodvine and Carl Johnson in a BBC TV play called The Black and Blue Lamp, which was a wicked lampoon bringing the idea of the TV cop show right bang up to date. It was extremely violent and uh, extremely funny, very anarchic, really. So it was a kind of taking the idea of the bill and pushing it pushing it right through into into a whole other zone. It was a comedy. But we also watched Zed Cars in our house. You know, cosy, cosy TV shows, really. Jolly Coppers on Parade. Um, the Bill, in my 
recollection was the first show about uniformed policemen which didn't show them all to be you know sweet good-natured public servants and and i thought that was very important because you know at that time in in the early 80s britain was pretty polarized you know there was very much a divided nation i think a, a little bit like now mm. with the brexit thing and some people were on one side and some people were on another, you know. Mm. And uh, the police, uh, as usual, stuck in the middle kind of thing. So I was attracted by the idea of playing this this young, aggressive, confident guy who was the kind of guy in my experience in my life and who had been attracted to the police force, you know, the kind of guy who wanted to wear a uniform, who wanted that extra power, who wanted to throw their weight around a bit. And as it turned out in the series, was also open to corruption, was a, was a racist, mm. was aggressive, was actually selfish, was basically out for himself, not really much of a public servant. But the police did attract these kinds of people, uh, as we saw later in the minor strike, and that was actually also picked up on in the show. So for me to actually get the chance to... I wasn't that keen, I have to say, on playing a TV copper. They weren't my favourite people in the world, and I also thought that television was, in some ways making the you know in my in the past anyway making the police out to be to be these golden boys you know and i just mm. thought that was not my experience of the police <laughs> growing <Right>. up <laughs> uh, uh, you know uh, you know of course they're, they're, they're not all the same they're, they're like human beings you know there's all kinds of different people but um i i was just pleased to get the opportunity to show another angle you know and i was pleased they also introduced the black character as well so that you know they were actually trying something a bit more contemporary, you know, and a bit more close to the bone. Absolutely. And it was obviously a wonderful opportunity for you as an actor, but was was it daunting as well when you're joining a company of actors who are already well-formed, they've been doing a series for a year? Were they welcoming? Did you know any of the cast already? Uh, I didn't know any of the cast, no, and it was quite daunting. It's always a little bit daunting going into a show as a guest. done a lot of that kind of work over the years where you just go in for one episode of a series but, you know, the people who are in the series on the whole sort of understand that part of their job is to make the guests feel at home. Mm. The bill was very laddish. It was quite difficult at first, but of course, after a few weeks, it was fine. It's the same as anything else in life. We, we all got on very well. Well, I've got a few Muswell favourite moments of mine, but before I go into my specifics, what are the memories for you from making the series that stick out in your mind? Well, I decided before we shot anything to add a scar. So I can't quite remember where it is, but I remember sitting in makeup every morning and having this scar applied to my face. And then at the end of the day, having it taken off and everyone else wouldn't bother with any of that. They were all, you know, end of the day, they'd be coming for a pint and I'd be, yeah, I'm just going back into makeup. And they're like, ah, you know, <laughs> so they'd be in the pub first. But I think it was a good decision because he wasn't me, you know. Mm. I have a level of sarcasm <laughs> and I can be quite rude, but I think apart from that, Muswell and I are chalk and cheese, really. Yeah, I just remember it being really fast. I remember I remember everything happening really, really fast and finding that really annoying at first, that there was no rehearsal, there was no discussion. It was just put it on its feet, you know, and what's your instinct of how to do it? But it stood me in really good stead over the years. It was a marvellous learning college, really, for screen acting and um, very supportive kind of thing, and, and but, but ridiculously fast, you know. They crammed it in every day, but it was fun as well. You, once you got used to the pace of it, it was it was exhilarating. And those long 
camera takes where you're having to walk around over the police station and saying all your lines and hitting all your marks and all that stuff. Yeah. Your first episode, it's called Snouts and Red Herrings. It's by the late, great Jeff McQueen. And that's where we also not only meet you for the first time, but we meet Abe Littleton, played by Ronnie Cush as Sunhill's first black police officer. What is it like when you're in that position of playing someone who's absolutely horrible to another human being and then obviously you're you're actors and you know you're playing parts, but I've often wondered, is there ever that awkward moment where you're having to be saying some pretty horrible things to another person? Mm. You know, what's the dynamic like for that, Uh, especially for for Ronnie, who's also a new new boy on the block as well? Mm. Yeah, it's... um... My wife is uh, my wife is black. I should just introduce here. And my girlfriend at the time was was from uh, the one I just left <laughs> was from Pakistan. Yeah, I didn't know Ronnie. You know what I mean? So we mm. had to kind of um, get get a relationship a sort of sort of overnight, really, or or even I don't think we even rehearsed any of those bits. But I, I've always felt that if you're playing somebody who's unpleasant or somebody who's not nice, is to be true to that. You know, some actors I know always want to be seen as cuddly you know even if they're playing you know an, an abuser or a rapist or or something else and it's like a, a really irritating side of acting is that all you know many many actors just want to be loved you know they just want that's why they went into it probably in the first place and um I, i've always found it to be very important to be true to the character you're playing so if my character was hated by the general public then that that to me was a was a result, you know. Mm. Um, if it, if I was hated by Ronnie, then then that would be that would fall into the category of of him reacting as his character to my character. Do you know what I mean? And there's a there's a funny sort of wobbly line there in between the actor and the part they're playing. I'm absolutely certain that he knew that I wasn't like that yeah. myself, but that in order to play the drama of the scene which is true for most black actors in those days is that usually they were playing being black as opposed to sort of just being a person do you know what I mean yeah I mean one of my oldest friends now is Rudolph Walker who was in Love Thy Neighbor back in the day and he lived that you know he he very much was the kind of trailblazer for that kind of work and um he said to me you know the, the reason why he liked the show it was controversial obviously the reason why he liked the show is because the neighbour was so racist and was so, you know, it, was, it wasn't it was trying to soft soap anything. So I think I, I felt like Ronnie and I were in that kind of same position, really. Yeah, yeah. Peter Cregine also directed episodes as well. So he directs the opening mm. there. And mm. what what was he? I, I know him best as the guy who acts Doctor Who. Uh, you know, he, he he's made like some really huge moments in tv history so as a director as as a filmmaker as it were what was he like to work with very encouraging very kind of fatherly really as as my memory of him as being very very smiley and very generous yeah very nice man indeed and did you ever meet jeff mcqueen himself i may have i I, you know we did all do a read through it for every episode so there was at least that moment of um, sitting around a big table and reading the episode and i guess he must have been there a fair bit you yourself are an acclaimed screenwriter. You've had motion pictures produced that you've written and stage plays. As a writer, what do you think it was about Jeff's storytelling technique that means that you and I are doing a podcast about the bill and it's still being repeated on television? It's got that authentic flavour of reality, you know. It's like overhearing people, you know. that It doesn't feel like written for drama. 
Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like a, a good documentary where you're actually watching people behave as they really are. And I think that was the, the lack of rehearsal kind of contributed to that rough, that sort of rough feel of it, not being stagey, not being dramatic, not being acted. You know, it was just, I, I think that's what we were all probably trying to do really is, is make it feel like fly on the wall. Yeah. Very hard to do, really. Oh, you guys did it so well, though. I mean, it's. I mean, people are really enjoying watching these repeats. It, it's so nice. Mm. I mean, I've got all the box sets, you know, I've lapped them up, but to see them on TV and seeing people who have only watched like the later series go back to the beginning now, and they're really enjoying mm. the the characters, mm. and that's the thing. I mean, people who have been writing on forums going, "Oh, I'm not sure about this Pete Muswell guy." You know, people are like commenting on him now as as mm, mm. discovering him, and it's it's really cool to see. But they're having to obviously um, trim down the repeats a little because you know there's full frontal nudity and swearing and all sorts in those early episodes of the Bill. You know, it wasn't like the the mm. softer show it later became. You know, mm, mm. you get busier as as the series continues. Was it a case where you'd pick up a script and you'd find out how much you'd have to do in an episode, or did they give you like an overview of the series as a whole where you'd know you'd have like this little pig is 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 Muswell's episode really? Yes, it is. Yeah, there's a lovely through line. He's got his income tax problems. How how ahead of that were you made aware of that? Uh, not at all. Uh, very much as you suggested that they uh, they handed out the scripts probably one day before the read through. So you read it the night before, and that's when you found out how much you had to do in that episode. They may have handed out the scripts like one hour before the read through. Wow. You know, and depending depending on the pressure of that particular episode, and so that you you didn't really have a clue at all until you sat down and and you didn't really have a chance to read it before the read through. You had a chance to flick through your bits and make sure that you weren't going to you know mess up uh, the read through and, <laughs> and get the lines in the right order and don't bump into the furniture. But um, yeah, it was it was the turnover was 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 rapid you know mm. so yeah i didn't i had no idea what, what i was going to be doing from episode to episode at all wow yeah that, well, that was a cracker it's by christopher russell he's one of my favorite the bill writers he he, he tends to pick characters and give them really good storylines that he picks his favorite characters mm. and and runs of them and he obviously mm. he obviously liked muswell for that opportunity to have him you know essentially having a second job to try and sort out his income tax and uh you talk about doing doing nights as a minder to uh, look after rich Arabs and them and their tarps yeah. and making sure they're not disturbed in their hotel rooms. And that. And a lovely scene where you're all in the loo, actually. You're all at the urinals <laughs> going for a pee and yeah, doing, doing yeah. dialogue. You know, there's, there's kind of a hint of Bart Wingett actually looking at Bob Cryer's Todger as well. It's really it's like this sort of moment. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, I think I remember that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you remember other parts of that episode, but you you have to help Colin Blumenau with a with a live pig as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you broom pig shit all over his boots, and yeah, it's great fun. You know, it must, it must have been fun mm. to to make as well. No, that's a good memory. That episode was a good good a good memory for me because he was he he almost became a comic character really. In yeah. That episode, you know. Yeah. Like he was a sort of large, larger than life boo hiss villain, you know. <laughs> yeah. Which are always fun to play those parts, you know. Yeah. 
you help Mark Wynn and Trudy Goodwin uh, arresting some fur protesters and you know they've tried to do it nicely and say step outside and then the protesters go back in and Muswell's answer is just to pick the woman up by her hair and just drag her out of the shop you know stick him in the <laughs> van you know that's his solution for it you know it's a nice episode yeah 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 Ringer you work with Nula Conwell where you've both got to your characters have both each got to tell someone that a family member has died. Um, and you really see the scar here because it's a lovely profile of you where you're just about to go off and do it. And, and Nula's character says, Pete, try and be diplomatic. And it's just a lovely profile shot of you and the scar where you just have that moment to think, think, how are you going to do this? And then mm. I don't know if you remember what happens next when you, you meet the lady, Mrs. Lockett, to tell her that her her mother's died but initially you bottle it yeah yeah you play it so well because she turns her back to go and get her coat and you say so much in that little moment where you think oh no because that's a that's a tough scene yeah that's Uh, the reality of policing you know later on you let you let your frustration out with a little chasing over some tires and must have been fun as well as as bloody exhausting all (laughs) of (laughs) it Let's be fit in those days, I tell you. <laughs> in the next episode, you, uh, one of my favourite of your moments, you uh, you catch a guy who's doing some unlicensed street trading and initially when you go down, yeah. there's two boys and they're, they're trying to rub you up the wrong way. So have you got the time, Constable? Does your head go right up your helmet? You just go, watch it. You, do it, you don't even look at them. It's so clever. The delivery is just spot on there. And I, I laugh at I love little moments. Sometimes my wife's like, shut up, you're going to laugh the ceiling off. But I just love little moments. Yeah. Because another actor might just throw that moment away. Well, that's the thing is, that's, that was the style of the show as well. Mm. You know, you're not, you're, not, you're not doing it like it's a drama. You're not doing it like it, you're trying not to do it. Like, you know, people don't always have eye contact with people when they're talking to them, you know, especially strangers. You know, it's, you've got to kind of mix it up a bit, really. Mm. And in that episode, you have a, a, a really good scene of Eric Richard, who is one of the iconic stars of Bill, and yeah. he questions you and your attitude towards Ronnie Cush's character. And what are your memories of working with Eric Richard? A completely, a completely lovely man. Yeah, I mean, I ha- I haven't kept in touch with really with anyone from the shows, to be honest, since I left it. Although I have the person I did see the most was Mark Wingett, because I ended up being very good friends with his wife's sister. So that's become a kind of a family um, thing. And, and I, I think I stayed in touch with Trudy for a bit, but not for that long. But um, I was very happy when I saw um, Dunkirk the other day to see Eric Richards. That's right. Turning up. Yeah, beautiful. That was such a, such a great moment. And I was, because I hadn't seen him doing anything for such a long time. You know, it's a long swim. Uh, you know, the fact we're still talking about this 30 years later. And I think, blimey, yeah, 30 years. <laughs> in your final episode... He's mellowed a bit, Pete. He and Ronnie Cush are, are almost pals. They, you know, by this point, you've had your telling off from Eric. Mm. You're seeing eye to eye. Did you feel there was a limit on how far that role could do? Or did you? Is there only so much a character can be an all-out bastard? Or yeah, well, nobody is an all-out bastard. But so, mm. so that you know, they had to kind of make it a bit more rounded. But at the same time, I thought there was there was room for the character to be much more of a bastard, in fact, and to get into disciplinary problems or to get into uh, uh, all kinds of issues, you know, that that those kinds of guys uh, get into, you know, or having to make a story because something's gone wrong, you know, 
and then getting found out by somebody. And then, you know, I could just see it. On the whole, most of the stories didn't go from episode to episode, as I as I recall. They were sort of self-contained things that happened e- each week. I think maybe as in the later years, they started to let stories run over more than one episode, which gives you a bit more of a chance to introduce more serious stuff, I think, and show the sort of sh- shading and subtleties of some of those issues. They served you quite well, actually, because it is a little moment in an episode after we know you've had income tax problems and we just see Muswell going to the cash point and it says no funds to be withdrawn. You just say shit and you're so frustrated. Mm. And it's a, it's a little moment. It's never referenced again, but it's just so, that, mm. you know, the audience back then, of course, you'd have like a core 12, 13 million people tuning in every week. They remember. So it's a nice little, nice little bit of continuity. Yeah. Presumably, it was your decision not to return for the next year. It was. In the end, I got frustrated with the, with the rhythm of, of work, working on a series like that. I think I did 12 episodes altogether. Yeah. You know, the waiting for the episode and then flicking through it to see what I had to do and then thinking, okay, well, that means I'm working on Thursday and then I'm not working till next Tuesday and then I'm working on, you know, next Thursday and then that's that until the next one. And uh, I, I, I got quite... I felt like, I mean, you know, I didn't have a mortgage or anything like that. I didn't have a family to support. I didn't need to have that regular income. And I and I, I kind of felt like I wanted to do more than that. I wanted to do more work than that. I wanted to do more. I wanted to be stretched a bit more as an actor. I wanted to be challenged. And I didn't think that that character was going to do it in the next series. And it, it was a lot to walk away from. You know, it was it was a big part in a big show. And it was good money and all of that. Mm. But I, I think I was young and brave, and and I think I made the right decision. But Peter Grigine called me in for a meeting and said, completely understand, but we'd like you to come back and do one episode in series three, and we've got um, a storyline worked out for you, where Muswell is chasing some people through an abandoned warehouse, and he falls through a hole in the floor and goes through to the next floor down and breaks his back, and ends up in a wheelchair. And so you kind of get invalided out of the police, but it also means that we have the option to bring you back if we all want to do that in later years to come kind of thing. Right. And I said, that sounds really, really good. Uh, That sounds like a great idea, and I'd be very happy to shoot that one episode, but I want to be paid the same as Eric um, and John Salthouse for that episode. And he said, absolutely no chance. So I said, okay, then. Oh, wow. That'll be that, then. That was how it finished. So, you know, Peter might now have the most glowing memories of me, really, with that being the kind of final thing. But that was how I felt about it at the time. And, you know, it wasn't as if there was a kind of a near... I can't remember the negotiation, but I don't think there was much of one. So, you know, I don't think anyone lost out on that. You know, they just carried on. I don't think Maswell was mentioned in episode three in terms of where did he go or anything like that. So... In the first episode of series three, there's a storyline where it is revealed that during the miners' strike, Muswell hit a young man with his truncheon who then died. And is that the opening storyline is the brother of that man coming down to Sun Hill to attack and, and kill Muswell. Right. So he's, he's mentioned that he's no longer at Sun Hill, that he's, he's moved on to another station. So... The fact that they even did that says an awful lot about your impact because later on, some characters literally do just disappear. You, you know, some actors didn't mm. didn't get that goodbye scene or any of that continuity. So, 
Yeah. It's a testament to your impact in that year that they felt they needed to do that because people would have been going, well, where's he gone? You know, where's that nasty guy gone? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's nice. I didn't know that. I thought, thanks for telling me that. I had no idea about that. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Your decision, of course, paid off. And you've had, from my perspective, you've had an incredible career. I know there's obviously times with people are out of work and there's uncertainty and all that is with the case of any actor. But, um, mm. I mean, you are... Well, thank you. Very briefly, two of my favorite. Obviously, I, I can't not ask you about with now and I because talk about going from Pete Muswell into Danny. You know, the, the characters yeah. are just so... I mean, that's that's a gift, isn't it, to be able to go from... It, it, it is. Is it true that you went to the audition like in costume with your nails painted? And... Uh, that is true. I mean, to be honest, that's how I, that's how I've always gone to uh, auditions. Uh, I've, I've always assumed that the people who I'm meeting have no imagination whatsoever, and that if I don't look like the character already, that they won't be able to imagine me in the role unless I give them a big few hints. <laughs> and so I and so I do that either with makeup or costume or hair or all three of the above. Wow. Yeah, so yes, I did look pretty odd for that audition, but I've looked odd for some, <laughs> for some quite a few <laughs> yeah. auditions over the years. That was the big breakthrough, obviously, in my career, you know, and because the film turned out to be so well-loved and, um, and certainly within the business particularly. Um, lots of people still have never heard of it and never seen it. You know, I, I, I get that, that thing of getting into a taxi and the, and the guy going, well, I, where do I know you from? You know, you're one of those actors, aren't you? You know, <laughs> and I go, and I don't know, I never know what to say first, you know. So, but I usually say with Nell and I, because that's kind of the thing that made my career. And, and I would say 50% of the time, the taxi driver says, never heard of it, you know. So wow. uh, it's a certain type of audience that that film has and they might know me from Mean Machine, you know, perhaps, or yeah. or the Bill, perhaps, you know. But yeah, I've, I've kind of covered a lot of different types of drama uh, over the years, and so, so I think when, when I add it all up, I think actually that's quite a substantial amount of work. But when you're in it, it's like I met a friend of mine a few years ago at a birthday party, and he said, "Wow, you've had a wonderful career. I haven't seen you for twenty years. You've had a wonderful career. How marvelous!" And I just went, "Is that what it looks like to you from the outside?" You know, because. I said, well, what's happening is you're only seeing the mountaintops. You know, you're seeing the peaks. I said, but you have to remember that in order to get to those peaks, I've had to slash my way through the undergrowth for the years of a machete, you know, and you don't see those bits because they're actually out of sight. Yeah. You know, it is a funny old thing. I'm very grateful and I'm very, very lucky and I, I, I feel blessed, you know, for everything that's happened to me. When I told my family I was going to be talking to you a lot, you know, my... My dad, it's for him, it's Alien Free. My brother, it's Star Wars. He has an action figure of you on his bedroom wall, from uh-huh. Phantom Menace. For for me, the performance I rewatched it at the weekend. It just you just moved me. To, I don't know what it is. You're a very clever man. It's it's another police drama series, Life on Mars. Your DCI Frank Morgan, and this as a punter, as a someone who admires your work, and I think that show is. It's pretty much perfection as, as as a viewer. I just love that. It's perfect television. Yeah, I agree with that. It's a brilliant idea, isn't it? When you turn up, it is such a reward for every viewer who's stuck with this for two series and it's building to what this epic conclusion. And it's you. It's a huge reward for a viewer when you turn up. That's very kind. 
Oh. It was an absolute honour honor for, for me to be asked to do it. I loved that show. I got on really well with everybody, you know, involved with it. And I was I was honoured to be asked. I really was to sort of ang- to sort of really play anchor man. You know what I mean? Yeah. And bring it home. You know, really, I was thrilled to bits. You have this incredible. I mean, there's so many moments where you're so utterly still, yet you are doing so much. That's so hard for a layman like me to actually describe. But I turned to my wife and I was like, he's fantastic there. And you were just standing still. (laughs) (laughs) Thinking lots of thoughts, probably. Yeah, yeah. The the eyes. And because you've got that dialogue where we think we know what you're saying, but actually the character doesn't know what John Sims' character is thinking he's saying, it's working on so many levels. It's just a magnificent mm. piece of work. And if you're ever going to re-watch any of your roles, oh, watch that again and be proud because that's a fantastic piece of acting. Well, that's extremely kind of you to say so. My, one of my worst memories of, of uh, watching myself on telly was that going out because it was so exciting to be in that I invited some people around and said, look, I'm in this amazing show, you've got to see it. And it was a big, you know, it was like, we had wine and food and everything, and I, I had to go outside into the garden at one point because I couldn't stand it. Uh, I, I felt so, I don't know, exposed, I think. I, I felt like in some ways I was watching myself rather than a character, and I, I wasn't. I mean, I was being another character, but I, I, I must have done some things in that show that reminded me of, I don't know, just I'd never seen myself like that, and it just felt it felt really odd. So I, I steer clear of watching it a lot of the time. Oh. I'm not as bad as Richard E. Grant, who's never watched himself since <laughs> the first screening of Widnail. <laughs> but I, I understand that, that, that horror that a lot of actors have about watching themselves. It kind of undermines them, you know. Yeah. I don't know if you knew this, just to finish. Since you played PC Pete Muswell, you have played over 100 different characters on screen in over 200 different Blimey. appearances. That's quite something, isn't it? It is. That's a lot, isn't it? Yeah. And whereabouts in that mix does Pete Muswell rank for you? I know that you didn't feel the role was going to stretch you long term, but do you have an affection for him on your on your resume? Oh, I do, yeah. I, I um, He was my first policeman, really. Um, I, I spent played policeman a lot when I was young because I think I was quite good at not showing emotion, and I think as a policeman you're trained not to show emotion and, and, and yet to feel it, you know. Mm. But I think that's kind of how I was when I was younger anyway. And, and I think I've, I've become more expressive, really, as, I've, as the years have gone by. But I have played a whole series of policemen. I will say in passing that I think I think the thing I'm most proud of is a film called Sus, which I made in 2009, based on a Barry Keith play. And I played the uh, the, the inspector there, Khan. And I, I think, really, I could trace a line from, from the bill through to Khan and, and, and look at all of those as coppers who I used to call my annual rent-paying policeman part, <laughs> you know. I turned down a, a gig with Edgar Wright on um, Hot Fuzz because I didn't want to do another policeman and I've kind of regretted that ever since because oh. that's, become a, that's become a huge cult. Yeah. Hit. But I, I started getting a bee in my bonnet about just playing policeman all the time and I always wanted to have a much broader, you know, character sort of palette than that, really. Mm. Anyway, I'm not always the best judge of what to do and what not to do, I think, <laughs> probably. <laughs> Well, the Bill fans worldwide who will be listening to this will be absolutely thrilled to have listened to your memories. I mean, what's your what's your message to them who who've stuck with Pete Muswell over the years? 
Well, thanks very much for watching and, and thanks for your interest. And I'm, I'm, I'm proud of a show that, that tried to show the police, you know, a little bit more how they were. I'm not sure if they're still like that. I think the police have gone through a lot of changes, especially the Met, mm. since that show was put out. And I'm not sure what the current police show is that's reflecting uh, how the London Metropolitan Police Force are now. Mm. But I think the bill is a fair reflection, perhaps, of how they were back in that day. So I'm very proud of it. And finally, I mean, you've given your time very generously, all the way from New York, you've given your time very generously for free. Is there a charity that means something to you that uh, listeners who've enjoyed this can donate a couple of quid to? Well, yes. Um, I'm uh, involved in a in a group called the Jubilee Debt Campaign, which I think is kind of above politics, really, but is really trying to re-establish another way of organising international debt, which I think you can point a finger to and say that's the the reason why so many smaller, less developed countries can get on, because it may shock some of your listeners to find out that, you know, countries like Malawi and Rwanda and, you know, Morocco and places owe us money and pay money uh, every year on a debt. And I think the Jubilee Debt Campaign is, is trying to get that debt wiped out and say, look, let's wipe the slate clean. We're the sixth richest nation in, in, in the world. We're doing all right. And so many people live in, in poverty. And so many people are doing different things to try and alleviate that, you know, including my friend Richard Curtis with the United Nations and Comet Relief. And, and I think the Jubilee Debt Campaign has a very good platform for saying, let's just get rid of worldwide debt and let these countries start again with a clean slate. And uh, that, would, that, would be my, that would be my chosen charity, the jubileedebt.co.uk, I think is the website. Fantastic. I'll, um, I'll pop a link on the page when this goes live so Thank that people you. can donate and no thank you so much for doing it i mean uh what can we see you in next what's coming up for you well i'm not sure how things have worked out in the uk uh, as regards what i've been doing here in america but i did a show called genius last winter which may or may not have gone out in the uk um which is about the life of einstein it was on national geographic and there's a film that i just did which is still being worked on called final score which is a kind of terrorist terrorist um film set in the west ham united's old football ground oh um, is this the dave bautista is that the one bautista is playing the lead and i have explained to them that that the americans don't use the phrase final score <laughs> um they say the final and they don't say the score at the end of it so they go uh, and the result is the final 2-0 to Arsenal, the final. And I'm like, the final what? It's the final score, man. But they don't say score. They never say it. So <laughs> I've tried to get them to change the title of a film. But it's not going to relate to people as a, as a hero school. Oh. But I think that's due out next spring, that film. Oh, fantastic. Brilliant. I shall keep a, an eye on your career with great affection. I shall continue to enjoy your work. And Thank you. Oh, and I just did um, I just did an episode of Death in Paradise as well. Oh, brilliant. Um, and just managed to escape the hurricane as it was as it was coming through. So yeah, that's the most recent thing I've done. Yeah. So you're still able to work in in the UK on the UK TV as well as over in America. Is it quite easy for you to get back and forth then? Or uh, it is it is easy. Yeah, and I do like to come back and, and 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 work in the UK as well. But they won't pay my fare, so I have to want to do it, and I have to I have to make make my own way over pretty much. Right. But but yeah, I like to keep my hand in. You know. Yeah. Well, that's for our benefit. And thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome, Oliver. Very welcome. Brilliant. Okay. Oh, thank you so much, Ralph. I'm really grateful, sir. Thank you. 
my huge thanks to Ralph for his time and for sharing such gold dust. This for me is what the podcast is all about. It's capturing memories and stories that might not otherwise ever be told. That's only made possible by legends like Ralph saying yes and giving up an hour of their time and being kind. It makes a lot of people happy, myself included, chatting to such a fascinating man and a phenomenal actor. Do give the great man a follow on Twitter. He's at Ralph WJ Brown. He's got lots of interesting things to say about life and the world we live in. So do check him out on Twitter. My thanks also to Ralph's agent, Emma Marchant at Curtis Brown. She was incredibly kind and helpful in setting up that interview. Check out Curtis Brown on Twitter too, at CBG Actors. They represent loads of brilliant actors like Ralph, and it's an easy way to find out the latest industry goss. Ralph's nominated charity is the Jubilee Debt Campaign, which is part of a global movement demanding freedom from the slavery of unjust debts and a new financial system that puts people first. You can find out more and make a donation via the Get Involved page on www.jubileedebt.org.uk. As many of you know by now, the Drama Channel took the unpopular decision to skip 10 years worth of repeats from their Bill Rewind season. That hadn't happened when I recorded my interview with Ralph. P.T. Muswell's season remained intact, bar a few cheeky edits, of course. So many of you wrote to the podcast Facebook page to share your disappointment. Uh, UK TV said it was down to the old episodes not getting as high viewing figures as their later repeats. I can't personally believe that, uh, certainly not based on the outpouring of negative reaction from so many fans online who were enjoying the repeats. A shame also to stop at Series 5 when in the UK the DVDs currently stop at Series 6, so if they had to skip anything, why not try Series 7, which are not commercially available in this country that could have seen viewing figures rise? Uh, who knows? However, there are, of course, fantastic storylines and characters and actors to enjoy from a late 90s era of the bill, and the podcast is going to do a little cheeky fast-forward to that era next. We've got a fantastic actor who these days is doing something quite marvellous. He's trained as a counsellor, he's helping people daily, and having lived through the trials and tribulations of all the uncertainty that comes with the acting profession, he's able to give some terrific insight to help others find their own emerging purpose. This is going to be a cracker. Here's a clip from a two-parter with a man who brought DC Tom Proctor to life. It's Mr. Greg Donaldson. Next time on The Bill Podcast. It took me a while to accept that I might need to change and go through that sort of long dark night of the soul, mm. you know, which mm. is often the kind of precursor to a, a sort of more enlightening moment. I, I sort of almost see uh, those moments of depression or, or um, existential crisis as a kind of rite of passage, you know? Yeah. It's like, we're going to have to go through those moments in life. There's no way that we're going to avoid them. 
you know, many people try to avoid them with drugs and alcohol and mm. binge <laughs> Netflixing and, you know, we've all been there. Yeah. yeah. Um, binge bill watching. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My current crisis, obviously. <laughs> it's all right. You're in the right place. Yeah. You're in the right place.